there's not that many billion dollar exits to be had in the e-commerce world, but there are a lot of pockets of opportunity to build businesses that can scale into the mid eight figures. And many of those opportunities end up being overlooked by the traditional venture communities. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we're going to dive into the world of building next generation brands as we sit down with Colin Doretta, the co-founder of the Innovation Department, and James Shawhab, the CEO and founder of Finn. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Well, Colin, I want to dive straight in with talking about the background of the innovation department for folks that might not be familiar with it. Can you tell me about the founding story of the business? Sure. So my co-founder, Alex, and I started innovation department several years ago with the belief that many of the core competencies integral to building digitally native brands could be scaled across several brands if if you house them under one roof. Further, we believe then and, and continue to believe that there's not that many billion-dollar exits to be had in the e-commerce world, but there are a lot of pockets of opportunity to build businesses that can scale into the mid-eight figures, and many of those opportunities end up being overlooked by the traditional venture community is just not exciting enough to focus on. And so we found that many entrepreneurs were therefore just ignoring these categories that were interesting and could build really profitable, great businesses that also did some good. Alex and I both have a real passion for wellness. And so a through line, as we've thought about the businesses that we ultimately wanted to build over you know, the next decade, were all businesses that in some way would touch the wellness world. To that end, we started with WellPath, a nutritional supplements business. And candidly, it wasn't a straight line to success. Uh, we had a lot of roadblocks and obstacles that ultimately made us stronger. I think the first of which and, and most significant was we just had a hard time figuring out Facebook, and this is called 2016, 2017. And that forced us to lean hard on figuring out other paths to success, which ultimately led to us building a software business in the form of Dojo Mojo, which helped enable us build our own audiences and also our development of a lot of Amazon expertise. So I want to talk a little bit about the teams and assets that you've had create, because you talked about Dojo Mojo. You guys have a really unique model and thinking about what it takes to build the capabilities around a business and launching a brand. So what are some more of those assets that you've built within innovation department that sets it apart from maybe other players out there? Sure. I think, you know, at a high level, we're really big believers in the value of first party data. I like the, and this is an imperfect metaphor, but I like the metaphor of digital marketing being a little bit like playing around the golf. You need a lot of clubs in your bag to be successful. Many brands have grown comfortable relying on Facebook and Google, in this metaphor, your driver and your putter per se, for the lion's share of their growth. Those two channels are great, and they're probably the two biggest ones for almost every brand, but they can only get you so far. And ultimately, you're at the mercy of those two platforms if your advertising strategies should stop working. So to that end, we built a software business, Dojo Mojo, which is a partnership marketing platform that enables the collection of first-party data, namely opted in email addresses, phone numbers, and physical addresses. WellPath, our first brand, has acquired now over 2 million email addresses. Finn, the second brand we've launched, has acquired 
several hundred thousand. We also run several other media newsletters that don't have brands attached to them yet, but have hundreds of thousands of subscribers each as well. And we use those as mechanisms for a lot of our customer acquisition because we now own the ability to have meaningful conversations with potential customers. And thus, we're going to invest really heavily in that content in the form of those newsletters and media sites. The Path Magazine, for instance, which is WellPath's media arm, operates as a completely independent media site with its own URL, with a mandate to write wellness content that engages, educates, empowers our readers. We actually believe in a golden ratio of two to one content to commerce. So no one is going to get bombarded with sales emails from us relative to the amount of content and that they're being provided. And so what does that ultimately mean, right? I think, well, the, for the first several million of run rate for any brand that we're going to launch, we believe that's typically the most inefficient spend when you're starting up a business. You're figuring things out, you're optimizing your funnels, there's all this friction that is taking place. With our owned audiences, our customer acquisition cost then ends up being a fraction of what it would be using otherwise pretty expensive marketing dollars. So that that has a huge amount to do with why we're able to be so capital efficient and profitable sooner than your standard standalone startup. And we believe that's pretty unique to innovation department. Even the other startup studios don't really have this kind of content first and audience development engine that we've developed. There are certainly other things that other brand studios have also leaned on that we also do. For instance, having a single engineering team for our D2C brands so we can almost copy and paste large amounts of code from one business to another, which saves enormous amounts of time and money. Further, since we have other shared resources and the functions of things like HR and design, we're able to have much larger and more competent teams and, and processes already developed than most startups are able to hire or develop out the gate. And we think all the above is what makes ID, you know, pretty unique ecosystem vis-a-vis -vis anyone else out there. So you mentioned the uh, the two brands that you guys have started with over the years. What's the process you take when bringing in, bringing on and building your next brand? Sure. So first, we aggregate a huge number of ideas. We encourage pretty much anyone in the organization to effectively throw ideas into a Google Sheet. And it can become a little cumbersome at times, but we basically ask that they can be broad, but they need to be at least specific enough that we know what a product comp might be, even if none perfectly matches it exists in market. Then we run all those ideas through a decision model where each idea is scored across a ton of data points. So for instance, some like the ability to build community require us using a judgment call on whether a category is capable of having a strong community around it. Pets, for instance, totally, right? People love to post about their pets. They love to talk about their pets. They care about their pets. There's a lot of content to be written about it. Keyboards, for instance, not quite so much. Other data points like the opportunity on Amazon, for instance, we can use third-party software tools to pull specific data that we think is a strong indicator of whether there's a big Amazon opportunity for us. There ultimately over the whole process are three rounds of scoring. The first focuses on really macro elements, things like what is the TAM, what is the category growing at, is there room for innovation, et cetera. Then the, the second that we drill down into gets somewhat more micro e.g. That, that ability to build community 
how much competition is there on Amazon, what are the CPMs on the major advertising channels, and then the very last level requires us doing some financial modeling, which, you know, fortunately, we have a host of ex-consultants and bankers on our team where we can analyze margins, working capital requirements, and, you know, kind of the nitty-gritty that ultimately becomes super critical to actually scale and scale a business. At each level, a lot of the ideas drop off. So by that last level where we're actually doing financial modeling, there's really only a handful at most left. And once we've done that, we, we sit down as a leadership team and review those last few and generally make a judgment call based on where we feel the largest opportunity is, because often you know the last three or four might be neck and neck. So while there's a ton of analytical metrics that are getting us to making that final decision, there's ultimately still a judgment call that we're making at the end. So the model that you guys are really playing in is this concept of linear commerce, you know, merging media and D2C brands to create that differentiate first party data and everything else you just talked about. Why do you think that really gives you such a leg up versus maybe more traditional singular models that are out there? Sure. I think that as I noted before, right, content and commerce has been around for a while, but we've figured out a way to develop audiences at a greater scale than just about anybody else by virtue of Dojo Mojo and, and our expertise with it. And then in turn, I think we've leaned heavily into categories where there's a real need for good content because customer education is critical. And that coincides really well with our passion for wellness. So to refer to what I briefly mentioned, we aren't going to go make keyboards because for one, we believe brand matters less there. And two, and, and much more importantly, there isn't that much great content to go write about keyboards. I think we'd, we'd run out of that relatively soon. And there aren't a lot of people on social media posting about their keyboards. Our swim lane is pretty clearly anything that's wellness adjacent. It's a ton, an area we have a ton of passion for across pretty much all of our organization and where we think that there's a need for really high quality content. We believe that if we're putting superlative products out there, but we're also putting content that then educates the consumer to make good buying decisions, then they'll be understanding why our products are differentiated compared to you know, a lot of the other subpar stuff that's out there in the market that just has nice branding attached to it and ultimately buy with us. So I want to dive in and bring that model to life a little bit. James, you recently helped launch Finn as kind of the second brand. You know, with this, you're combining your pet and wellness expertise. How'd you really come to the conclusion that that was the merger that you guys wanted to launch as the next brand? So we did a lot of the decision-making analysis that Colin went into, but it also came from a more personal place as well. Before I joined Colin at Innovation Department, I was working on Wall Street and was kind of going through my own personal health and wellness journey, doing that typical Wall Street grind, working 18 hours a day, getting very little sleep, eating all three meals at my desk, and really committed to myself during that time that I wasn't going to let myself go. And I, I made sure that everything I was doing was keeping me happy and healthy and really wasn't letting myself go. That evolved into an interest in health and wellness beyond just my own personal interest so much that I actually joined Colin at innovation department, um, working side by side with him to build WellPath into what it is today. As I was doing that, I realized that there were so many other technical elements to a wellness journey, such as pairing turmeric with bioparin, this black pepper extract that boosts the absorption of the ingredients and nutrients within turmeric. Um, and I was 
so excited about what I was doing and learning that I just wanted to uh, expand that or, you know, kind of share this amazing knowledge with the world. Um, at the time, I was also working on this Pet Focus newsletter, one of the ones that Colin mentioned um, within Innovation Department. And it occurred to me that if we are giving our dogs birthday parties and Instagram accounts, then people will also probably want to hold their pets to the same standards of wellness and nutrition. The more I looked into that and spoke with a lot of the most engaged email subscribers, I looked into the actual category itself and realized that there was so much we could do into building a premium product and building a brand around it and really became excited about not only the market opportunity that that decision-making framework showed us, but that we could build a real brand around it and make something that was going to make pet parents and actually pets in this case, happy and healthy. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So when you look at that pet parent space, you know, there's been a lot of innovation and premiumization of the space around pet food and everything else with it. What unique opportunity did you see for Finn and what are you guys coming out the gate with your launch products? Yeah. So I'll start by just saying I invested so much time and effort and research into making sure that our soft shoes were as efficacious for pets as they could possibly be. And in the case of supplements, there was a lot that I knew I'd be able to take away from in speaking with vets and other animal health experts, but there was a lot that we could actually add to the category of supplements in this case, based on what I knew from working with Colin and at WellPath. Obviously, the physiology of a dog is different from that of a human, but it's actually pretty similar as well. So I was able to apply a lot of what I knew um, from these human supplements to pets as well. For example, being extremely mindful of the number of active ingredients that are in our supplements, the doses of them, and then the inactive ingredients too. So I mentioned that uh, line about pairing turmeric with black pepper, but I also learned from human supplements that silicon dioxide, for example, is a coating agent that's used by manufacturers to help move the capsules down the line. But it actually offers no nutritional benefit to the end user um, and was something that we could do without. It's a, it's a foreign substance in your body that you don't need. So I took a lot of that, a lot of other um, of these technical aspects or elements of supplements that we were applying with WellPath, confirmed that with the panel of vets that I was working with and put together, to make sure everything I was doing and applying from human supplements was just as good, if not, you know, even better. And of course, safe for animals as well. So when you look at this, uh, you know, this broad space of wellness, it's an interesting one in that your first product was something that's wellness for humans, where you can see that benefit on yourself, the person purchasing. The second product is one for, you know, the pets where you don't know if it's necessarily working yourself because it's on, you know, the animal that can't talk to you. How has that changed your approach and how you've thought about communicating with the buyer that not maybe not, well, definitely isn't necessarily the user of the product? Yeah. So 
You're absolutely right. We don't necessarily know. I mean, a lot of times we don't know whether it's going to be good or bad for the pet, sometimes until it's too late. So we have made sure to go above and beyond in confirming that everything that we're doing and formulating and building for these pets is at a baseline, absolutely safe for those pets. And then from there, we want to make sure that everything that we're doing is actually going to be beneficial to them as well. So from a product development standpoint, we worked with vets. <laughs> we spent so much time working with them to make sure that, like I said, everything we were doing was safe, but researching with them that the number of active ingredients, the dosages levels, all of that was going to be at a level that was also efficacious for them as well. And in communicating that to all of our customers through every single touch point to make sure that they saw just how much time and effort and research we put into making these both safe and efficacious for the dogs. So when you look at the pet food industry and just the pet industry as a whole, I mean, it's, it's an industry measured in the tens of billions. Why do you think the major players in the space haven't seen the opportunity that you've seen with Finn? I think they're now so far removed from their end customer that they're losing sight of the importance and value of speaking with them. And in this case, the end customer is actually the pet itself, which the kind of big companies have also lost sight of. And while they have a lot of um, <laughs> corporate strategy groups and people speaking with market research firms that are kind of giving them this information, ultimately, we literally went to dog parks. We spoke with other dog owners to see how their approach to pet parenting has changed over the decades that the other big conglomerates have already been serving um, pets and pet parents. Yeah, I, I think, Dave, the one thing I'd add there is. You know, our, our content and community focus means that we have that one-to-one -one relationship through, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who read our newsletter. Our products were developed in a, uh, basically accord with talking to the 100,000 subscribers the Finn newsletter had before we ever went into the product development lifecycle. We started asking them what was important to them, what delivery methods were important to them, you know, what flavors their pets wanted. It was a truly born not just of us sitting locked away in a room but born out of a partnership with our community and because of the traditional distribution model which hasn't been d2c which hasn't been content and community focused but has been through the big retail players they just haven't developed that muscle in the same way that startups like ours have so when you look over the last few months, we're living in a world where second order consequences are playing out because of the pandemic and COVID. And one of those has been on the pet industry. You know, adoptions are at an all-time high from shelters, you know, which is obviously a very good, positive thing. How did that contribute to your plans of when you were going to launch Finn? Did it slow it down? Did you move it up? Walk me through that. So there was definitely some supply chain setbacks that came as a result of COVID-19. But with the rise of dog ownership, with all of the tailwinds that COVID-19 was actually contributing in terms of launching a pet brand, it only made us more excited and more energized about getting the brand out there as much as possible. It actually also kind of changed the way that we approached it to success for Finn most broadly is to help pets everywhere live healthy and happy. And our supplements and wellness products absolutely help, but we knew that there was so much more we could do. I remember from the start of COVID, even before that, I was speaking with a bunch of different foster shelters like Foster Dogs NYC and Deity Animal Rescue, who in the beginning of COVID were 
overworked as everybody was starting to foster and adopt dogs, but now are actually looking for ways to engage this new outsized roster of foster parents that they have. And there was so much more that we could do, and I wanted to work with these foster shelters in helping achieve both our and their mission. So we've started to donate product to foster shelters for their animals, but also as gifts to foster parents to keep them excited and active and engaged. Um, and we often pair that product donation with monetary donation as well in our broader mission of just helping pets everywhere live healthy and happy. So we start off the conversation talking about kind of where innovation department was born from. And if you look over the last, you know, call it 10 years of brand building, we've seen this evolution. You know, we had the legacy brands that dominated the shelves and the, the storefronts. You had the emergence of the first generation of direct consumer brands, which in many cases were acquired from, you know, those lo- large legacy companies trying to fend against it. Where do you think the next five years is going to take us when it comes to, you know, the invention of brands, the growing of brands, and where things go in this consumer space? Sure. Um, well, if if I could prognosticate that perfectly, that would be impressive. I'm, I'm not sure I have that sort of hubris, but I do believe that the kind of call it C 1.0 or even 2.0, the, the Caspers of the world, basically were building models that the kind of the messaging and Morby had the same messaging was to say, hey, instead of going the traditional retail route where you're going to spend 2x what uh, you really, the the manufacturing cost plus a nice margin would be, we're going to sell it to you direct, right? And that was the value proposition. It was more cost oriented of you're going to get the same quality product and you're going to get it cheaper because we're cutting out the middleman in the form of the retailer. And that was a really compelling message, right? Warby is a big success. Um, You know, Casper, it certainly has had some challenges, but I think, you know, still uh company worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And there's, you know, the Dollar Shave Club, right? Kind of the same general proposition. And that ship has largely sailed. There is not going to be many more of those, hey, we're just disintermediating somebody. I think what that means now is, you know, brand is going to matter ultimately a lot more and and product, of course, right? So either you have to have real product innovation, and, and there's certainly people out there doing that in meaningful ways, sometimes really substantial, sometimes product innovation on the margin, and then other ways to really connect with the community around your product. I think the most successful brands that we're going to see, and, and I would characterize a brand, for instance, like Glossier amongst them, are brands that have figured out a way to really capture people's imagination where it extends beyond just, hey, what does the product do for me and turns into this can have a negative connotation, but they, they create a cult-like following amongst the people who really love it. And I think the big winners will be the people who can seize on that. And that alchemy is a significantly more complicated and challenging formulation to create than simply, hey, we're just going to be able to sell you the same thing you used to buy, but cheaper. So I think there's going to be a lot more art than purely science going forward. And people are going to have to figure out new ways to connect with their individual consumers that extend beyond just we're going to you know serve you Instagram and Facebook and, and search ads. Well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure learning about what you guys have built as a pet parent myself, love what you are doing with Finn. And as a you know brand builder, I think what you've created in the insight with innovation department is truly what's needed in the industry. So thank you for taking the time to tell us uh, more about it. You bet. Thanks for having Thanks, us. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.